Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. My name is Nathan Ayersman, and our family has been here in town for about six weeks now, and you know, time's a, a funny thing. At the same time, it both feels like it's been way longer than that, and it's at the same time, it's hard to believe that it's only been six weeks, that it's already been weeks. As Natalie was sharing, we're, we're thankful that God worked it out for us to be here for this time, and, and part of that joy has been being here and part of this church family with you all. And I came to faith in, in high school and through the ministry of the local church, and God really used that to give me a love for the church and a desire to serve the church, and so I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that with you all this morning. One of the first times when my faith was tested, my, my new faith as a teenager was tested, was when I had when I faced a decision about college, and I had the opportunity to choose kind of the, the comfortable uh, state school in town where my family went, and, you know, the less expensive option, or I had the opportunity to step out in faith and follow where I felt God was leading me uh, to go study ministry at a, at a private school that was significantly more expensive. And, uh, you know, by God's grace, he... he led me in obedience to, to follow after him, and, and he's uh, brought me um, here where I am today. But that uh, tough choice I faced is not all that uncommon in the Christian life. You know, when a person encounters Jesus, he's faced with an uncomfortable proposition. In the, in the gospel accounts, a man came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ultimately told him, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So essentially, the call of Jesus is to leave behind the things and the ways of this world and to live instead as a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. So for this rich young man in Jesus' day, and for so many in the world, that, that bar was too high of a hurdle to clear. The world had a hold on that man's heart. He was sorrowful at the thought of giving it up. So instead, he, he went away without submitting to Jesus. That really is the natural response for all of us as humans. We're born of this world, and we desire to cling to this world. When a person has experienced the saving grace of God, the response is different. The response is no longer, what do I want, but what is God calling me to? Our text for today is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And in this passage, Paul prompts three appropriate responses to the past, present, and future grace of God. So let's open the Bible now and and turn together to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul's mission in this letter to his fellow worker, Titus, is to hold up the gospel as the antidote to false teaching and to worldly living. In the section right before our text for today, Paul is exhorting the older believers in the church to teach sound doctrine to the younger people. 
And then in, in this passage, Paul lays out the theological basis for why that's important. So I invite you to read with me in Titus chapter 2. I'll be starting in verse 11 and reading through until verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. Before we dive into studying this passage, would you pray with me? Good and gracious Lord God, we're so thankful for your word, for the way that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, for the power it has to transform us by the work of your Holy Spirit to be more and more like Jesus. I ask that as we study together this morning, you open the eyes and the ears of our hearts and our minds to your truth. I ask you to illuminate your word and to guide us into the action you would have us carry out this week for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the growth of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing for us to notice in this text this morning is the abundance of God's eternal grace, and then all of the effects that it has for those who are in Christ. Even taking just a quick glance through the passage, we see a really beautiful picture of past and present, and future grace. So we begin in verse 11, in the past. We see that the grace of God has appeared. In other words, the grace of God took on flesh and dwelled among his people. Jesus is the grace of God personified. And the purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring salvation for all people. We see the depths of God's grace and that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem his chosen people from our sins, and to purify us before our holy and righteous God. That's the past. And then in the present, we see in verse 12 that the grace of God is training us. As we go through each day abiding in the grace of God, He is training us. He's forming and transforming, shaping us to be more and more like the image of grace personified. Then in the future, the grace of God promises a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The effects of the past and the present grace give us every reason to expect the coming of future grace. So the question then is, how are we to live in response to the eternal grace of God? 
Well, in Titus 2, 11 to 15, Paul prompts us with these three appropriate responses to the past, present, and future grace of God. So let's explore those together now. Starting first in verses 11 through 12 and 14, we respond to God's grace by living with godliness. By living with godliness. We'll start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Then jumping ahead to verse 14, we see that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus appeared and he, he brought salvation by giving himself up for us. And then the proper response to this outpouring of God's grace is to change the way you live. The, the big idea here is that Jesus doesn't just save you from sin, but that he saves you to holiness and godly living. If you've ever tried to break a habit or curb an addiction, you know that it's important to replace, the, fill the void left by the old bad habit with a new good habit. If you're, you're trying something like trying to stop drinking soda, but you leave that spot in the fridge empty, most of us aren't going to be able to persevere through that challenge. Before too long, you'll probably find yourself at, you know, at the gas station standing in front of the soda fountain. But if you fill that empty spot in the fridge with an alternative, then when you get hit with a craving, you have something to satisfy it with. Like Paul says in this text that Jesus came to redeem us, that's to, to take us out of the old life, to get rid of the old bad habit. And he came to purify us, to remake us. That's to put on you know, the, the new, the good habit. You know, in, in one sense, this is, it's an immediate change. When you've been redeemed by Jesus, you are made new. But in another sense, it's an ongoing change. It takes place over time as God, in his grace, and by the power and the work of his Holy Spirit, is continually training you to be more like Jesus. And then this passage gives us an insight into what the goal and to what the fruit of that training is. That the, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, or later in the, in the passage he says to train us uh, away from all lawlessness. Paul says that we are to renounce the former ways of the word of the world, excuse me. And so the sense of this, this word to renounce, it's, it's more than just moving on from the old way, from letting those things go. To renounce the old ways really is to deny them. It's to disown what used to be the desires of your heart, to just say no to their former way of living before you were saved by Jesus. 
You know, the way of the world, the former way, is the way of sin, of putting yourself above others. It's the way of seeking out more stuff and more earthly, personal pleasures. It's the way of being controlled by your feelings and letting your your selfish dreams guide your life. But this is the mindset that Jesus calls us to leave behind, to renounce. And in its place, the the present grace of God is training you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as those who are zealous for good works. What I think is really interesting and remarkable about this change is that it's not just behavior, but it it cuts to heart-level desires. No longer are we to be controlled by the whims of feelings and passions and earthly desires, but you're to be driven to live with the character of the one who saved you out of this world. Because when you're aware of the the riches of God's grace in your life, your affections for him are stirred. And then when the the eyes of your heart and your mind are fixed on him, then the desires of your heart and the the thoughts of your mind are going to be to, to put him first, to seek first his kingdom, to put others before yourself and to honor God with every word and action. And, you know, like any training, this change takes time. And an important part of of training is evaluating your progress. I once trained to compete in a sprint triathlon. So it's, it's a race where you swim 400 meters and then bike 10 miles, and then run a 5K, 3.1 miles. And this was a long time ago before we had any kids, uh, so it was, it was a little different time of life. But I had a decent start on the, the biking and the running, but the swimming was really the part that I needed to work on. The first time I got into the pool, I could barely swim 25 meters before I had to stop and catch my breath. And in that moment, I was thinking, how in the world Am I going to swim 16 times this much without drowning and then get on my bike and ride 10 miles? Uh, It was in that moment, there in the middle of the pool, thinking, what am I doing? Why why did I sign up to do this? But over time, I kept going back to the pool, kept swimming. and, And over time, I could tell that the training was paying off because I was able to go farther and farther each day without stopping look at your life or as you maybe more specifically look at your desires evaluating your progress are your desires today more godly than they were a year ago maybe I challenge you to take stock of the way that you're living do your desires and your words and your actions show that you're responding to the abundant grace of God in your life It's an important question for us to consider because the first way we respond to God's grace is by living with godliness. And the second way we respond to God's grace is by teaching with authority. By teaching with authority. Verse 15 says, Declare these things. 
exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So at this point, uh, it's, it's important to remember the, the larger context of our, our passage. We, we started this morning in verse 11, but this whole chapter is an exhortation to teach sound doctrine. So Paul is writing directly to Titus, who is a pastor of a local church, and, and men who are called to shepherd the body through scriptural teaching bear a special responsibility and a special authority to do so. But the principles at play in this passage apply to all of us because we all share a burden to make disciples by teaching the gospel. In fact, in in verses 3 to 5 of Titus chapter 2, Paul said that older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So it's, it's valid for us to look at this passage and to say that we all are to respond to God's grace by teaching with authority. So the next question then is, what are we to teach? Paul simply says to declare these things, these things. And, you know, verse 15 is the culmination of this section of the letter. It's the end of chapter 2, and, and so we can take these things to mean really everything Paul has told Titus to teach up until that point. Specifically for where we are today, these things equals the gospel. We're to be teaching the appearing, the saving, the sacrificing, the redeeming of God's grace. And then we are to be teaching people to respond to this grace by living with godliness. And there's, a, there's an interesting three-pronged approach to teaching in this verse. First, we declare the gospel. To declare is to, to speak or to say. So simply, we are to tell others the good news of God's grace with our words. And second, we exhort. And to exhort is to, to urge or to implore So when we urge a brother or sister, we are encouraging one another to walk in godliness. And it's maybe even stronger than encouraging. Exhorting has this idea, you know, it's giving a loving shove in the right direction. Or or maybe better than a shove, it's it's taking someone's hand and, and walking along with them, showing them how to walk in a way that honors our King and our Savior. So we declare and we exhort, and third, we rebuke. It means in love, we call out the sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and then we apply the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel to their lives. And it's in doing that that we lead one another to respond to God's grace by living with godliness. So do you see that this rounded out picture that Paul is painting of teaching were to speak the truth of the gospel 
than that is to be rounded out in practice by encouraging the good and by correcting the wrong. And our teaching, Paul says, is to be with authority. Though we might ask, where does this authority come from? What if I don't feel equipped or qualified to teach the gospel with authority? Well, the good news is that the authority doesn't come from you as the teacher, but it comes first from the message that you proclaim. When your message, when your words are saturated with scripture, when you're teaching the gospel from the Bible, your message, you're you're teaching with authority because your message is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Your message has the power to complete a person, to equip him for every good work. So we teach with authority because the message we proclaim is ordained by God. Excuse me. Excuse me. So first we, we teach with authority because of the message we proclaim. And then second, your authority comes from the one who sends you to teach. As a Christian, you're, you're sent into the world to teach by the king over all creation. When we speak of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, we often start in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But the therefore is a clue that what Jesus said immediately prior is an essential part of the equation. Jesus first said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus sends his church out into the world to go teach with his authority. So when you teach the gospel to a neighbor or a friend or a waitress or a child, you're teaching with the authority of one bearing the badge of Jesus, saying, I come with the authority of Jesus. The present, it's the present grace of God that's sending and empowering you to teach with this authority. So as ones who have tasted the sweetness of life with God, becomes the drive of our lives to share the gospel of God's grace with those who have not yet tasted it. When you have been freed from the bondage of sin, you want to see other people experience that same freedom. When you have experienced the grace of God carrying you through a challenge in life, you want to see a lost friend or a lost family member experience that same grace as she's going through a trial or a tragedy in life. So we respond to God's eternal grace in our lives by teaching with authority. And third, we respond to God's grace by waiting with expectation. Waiting with expectation. As we saw in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus. And yet, as Paul says in verse 13, we are presently waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then the first appearing of Jesus, he brought salvation for all people. If you've been saved by faith in Jesus, you have already experienced that saving grace of God. And because you've seen God prove himself to be faithful time and time again, you expect him to be gracious again. You know, because of your experience, you know deep in your bones that he is going to make good on his promise to return for his people, to remake the heavens and the earth, and to wipe every tear from the eyes of his beloved children. And that gives you hope. And if you think about hope, (coughs) excuse me, you think about hope, you know, hope is for something in the future, but it motivates present action. So if you're, if you're hopeless, you're likely going to be stuck in your present situation. There's, there's no reason to do anything if you're not hopeful for the future. But if you are hopeful, you have energy to make forward progress. If you're hopeful that you're going to get better after this procedure, you're, you're motivated to do the work to get better. Future hope motivates present action. And that means that this waiting for this future appearing of Jesus is not an idle waiting. Waiting with expectation means active waiting, waiting on mission, waiting with purpose. The, the way of the world waiting, waiting according to the way of the world is, is like the man in the parable that Jesus told who took the one talent from his master and he went and buried it in the ground waiting for his master to return instead of investing it. But that's not the church's philosophy. Jesus has made us new. He's given us a new approach to waiting. Verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself up to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So we can connect the dots from here in Titus chapter 2 to 1 Peter 2, 9, where Peter uses that same phrase, a people for his own possession. And it gives a little insight into how we should be waiting. In that verse, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. (coughs) As those who are in Jesus, you're living out of a new identity. You are a set-apart people for his own possession. And that new identity brings with it a new mission. We are set apart so that we might proclaim the grace of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Because we have experienced the abundance of God's grace, we are waiting with expectation for Jesus' triumphant return. And we have a job to do while we wait. 
Because Jesus brought salvation for all people, we are compelled to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because we have been entrusted with the message of the gospel, we are motivated to go and invest it in, the, in our master's kingdom. And that means doing things today, expecting them to bear gospel fruit even years down the road. So investing in our master's kingdom looks like planting gospel seeds in everyday conversation, expecting that God is going to water them in his good timing. It looks like going out of your way to include a younger person in your life so you can teach him or her what what gospel living looks like, fully expecting that God is going to transform you both for generations to come in the process. Investing in the kingdom of heaven looks like cutting something out of your budget in a way that hurts and investing that money in foreign missions, fully expecting God to multiply its gospel impact around the world. It looks like getting up an extra 15 minutes early to pray, expecting God to work according to his nature. Because when you have experienced the grace of God in the past, you know that he's going to be gracious in the future. So you wait for that coming glory with active missional Working on a bit of a cold this week, I'm sorry. So we wait for the future coming of Jesus with active and missional expectation. You know, time really is such an interesting part of life. Time doesn't change, and yet we all experience it a little differently at different times, right? Time flies when you're having fun. If things have been particularly rough, you might say, man, that was a long day. And the older you get, time just seems to roll on faster and faster. That can be our our perception of day-to-day and year-by-year life. But if you zoom out and look at the bigger picture, if if you place your life on the timeline of history, it really it puts your time on earth into proper perspective. And, and putting your life into proper perspective helps you know how to live with purpose in the present. So from this text in, in Titus chapter 2, we see that our place on the timeline of history is after the redemption accomplished by the life and the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus And yet it's before his triumphant, glorious return. So again, the the important question for us to ask is, how are we to live in the present in response to God's grace? We, We know what was accomplished in the past. Jesus came and died in your place to pay the price for your sins so that you might be made right with your creator God. And since we don't know when Jesus is returning to bring that final judgment, today is the day to respond to that grace. If you look at your life and see that you're living according to the ways of the world, 
Jesus lovingly reaches out and bids you, come, follow me. Will you go away disheartened like that rich young man clinging to the world? Will you submit and experience the abundance of God's grace forever with him? For those of you who are already walking in the grace of God, I pray that you remind yourself every day by saturating your life with scripture and with prayer, remind yourself of the abundance of God's grace. Because when you remember the abundance of God's grace in your life, you're able to live each moment both in response to the grace that you've already received and in hopeful expectation of future grace to come. We respond to God's eternal grace by living with godliness, teaching with authority, and by waiting with expectation. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Lord God, we are so thankful for your abundant grace. We pray that you would bring the abundance of your grace to mind as we spend time dwelling with you in your word and in prayer, as we spend time seeing your glory in creation, in fellowship with one another. And I pray that as we reflect on your grace, that you would move us to live with godliness, that we would put off the old self to move on from the ways of the world to deny the ways of the world, the ways of our former self, and to to put on the ways of the new self, living with godliness after your good design. I pray that you would equip and empower us by the work of your Holy Spirit in us to teach with authority, knowing that our responsibility is to be faithful in proclaiming the good news, and and it's your job to, to transform hearts we ask you to do that in our communities and beyond. We pray that you would help us to wait with expectation. Give us a hope in the, the future reappearing of your glory. And may that future hope move us to present action. And I pray for any here and any we know and love who have not yet responded to that grace. Would you send your spirit to to soften their hearts and to move them to respond in submission to your grace, to give themselves fully over to walking with you in joy and the fullness of life with you. Pray that you send us out from here, God, as, as ambassadors of reconciliation, as proclaimers of the good news of your grace, for your glory and the good of your church, and the growth of your kingdom. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.